Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice when Boom. Hello, everybody. And some of y'all have been patient. We've been uh, synchronizing the different social medias tonight and want to thank everybody for joining us. It's going to be a really special night. And some of y'all had no idea we had any technical trouble because you're listening to the podcast or watching it afterwards. But it's going to be absolutely great. This is our monthly Red Letter Christians book club. And I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag too much because we've got a really great special guest that we've incidentally been trying to get for a very long time. But um, yeah, she's awesome. And um I'm, I'm going to, we're going to introduce her in just a second, but as people trickle in, especially with a little bit of the technical issues we had, um, I want to first say that we, as we're recording this anyway, we are in the middle of Advent and this season that we wait expectantly and celebrate the coming of Christ and the continual work of, uh, of Jesus in the world. Um, we've had a really special series going on this whole month where this year we've remembered God showed up for us in a certain way. And now we're invited to show up for God in the world in a certain way. So we began with Liz Theo Harris, Reverend Liz Theo Harris, uh, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, did a powerful video. God showed up for us as a homeless baby, and now we should show up for poor and low-income families uh, in our world. And uh, then we had Charles Keith, whose brother is wrongfully convicted and in prison. And uh, he reminded us that God showed up for us as a condemned um, person. And now we should show up for folks that are incarcerated and on death row. Jack Sullivan, our brother out in Ohio, uh, made a powerful video reminding us that God showed up for us as a victim of violence. And now we should show up for the victims of violence and it's all of its different manifestations in our world today. So we got a few more coming y'all. Alexia Salvatier is going to do one uh, on G how Jesus was a refugee, and now we should show up for refugees. Um, Lisa Sharon Harper is going to remind us that God showed up with brown skin, and so we're to show up for racial justice today. And we've got a bunch of copies of Lisa Sharon Harper's book. She's a board member and uh, you know dear partner of uh, here at Red Letter Christian. So we've got her newest book, Fortune, that we're going to raffle off randomly to a bunch of you who... Uh, uh, give this month. Um, we've done a couple other things. We've had these um, heart hearts that we make out of a slice of a gun barrel that we gave away. Um, and now we've got, this is really powerful. If you haven't seen these, these are tear gas ornaments from Bethlehem, where the sweet Lord Jesus was born in Palestine. Our friends have been gathering these tear, tear gas canisters fired on them by the Israeli um, army 
and making job, creating income and jobs as they make these ornaments to remind us, right, that the Prince of Peace uh, was born in Bethlehem, an area that's still a really, really troubled region of our world. So we we need some peacemakers in the world. And that's what we're talking about tonight. I'm going to introduce one of my favorite peacemakers. We've got two of them up on here today. Uh, but uh, Diana Ostrike is uh, um, an incredible friend. She's a core part of our Red Letter Christians team. She's on staff. She's now taking on even more responsibilities. So she's helping rock this whole RLC operation. She's also uh, a veteran now uh, passionate about peacemaking and training and, and lecturing on peacemaking. She wrote a great book called Waging Peace, and we've um, celebrate it, uh, celebrated it during the book club. So she's going to kind of host and moderate the conversation. I, I get to sit back and listen and pump my fist in the air when, when uh, Oshita brings a word. So she's going to uh, also in, um, uh, introduce Oshita Moore, our wonderful guest tonight. So thanks for joining us, everybody. Welcome, welcome. And Shane, thank you for kicking us off. I'm just so excited. This is like a book club unlike any other because you'll often hear Shane give his Tennessee woo woo. <laughs> I just feel like uh, December is Advent. And if there is one month that um, that we come together and we say the name of the Prince of Peace and we mm-hmm. say that the power has come to interrupt this violence that we've been experiencing in the world, in the hardest to reach places and also in our own backyards. Um, So welcome for being here and thank you for being part of this peacemaking community um, that really believes. We really believe that Jesus and justice is how love gets gets to be in every corner of where we live. Um, So I am super excited to meet one of my peace heroes And one of my friends, Oshita Moore. Uh, and also, she lives in Minnesota, and I live in Minnesota, which means that we're basically neighbors. So, Oshita, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks, Diana. I'm so glad that we are we are neighbors and fellow Minnesotans, and I'm, I'm really happy to be here. It's going to be great. Well, I'm super excited because uh, it is true that we have been really trying to get Oshita to come and talk with us at RLC, uh, just because she is incredible. And I hope um, I hope that you all are seeing her book, Places. It is called Dear White Peacemakers, um, because we need to support peace and we need to support peacemakers like Oshita, who are writing and empowering us to do peace. Um, so we're going to be talking about her book. Uh, But before we do, I am going to tell you, um, so a little snippet, just so a lot of people join our book clubs and they've never read the book, which is awesome. Because you get a sneak peek and then you read the book. So I'm going to give them a little snippet about the book. Uh, Dear White Peacemakers is a breakup letter to division, a love letter to God's beloved community, and an eviction notice to the violent powers that have sustained racism for centuries. Written in the wake of George Floyd's death, Dear White Peacemakers draws on the Sermon on the Mount, spirituals, and personal stories from author Oshita Moore's work as a pastor in St. Paul. So I'm going to read a little bit of Oshita's bio, because Oshita, I think it's so cool. (laughs) I think there is just one in a million of you, and I just want everybody to get 
to have a little bit of your spunk and your fun. Um, so Oshita Moore is a peacemaker based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Woo, woo. She pastors Roots Church, <clears throat> is a prolific speaker and the author of two books. One we are going to get to talk about tonight. She describes herself as, um, she says, I'm an African-American suburbanite Texan who fell in love with an urban core development in New Orleans when we moved into our under-resourced neighborhood. Since then, her and her family has evacuated New Orleans when Katrina hit and her husband finished seminary in and served at a church in LA. And now they are living and pastoring in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm a stay-at-home mom whose 10-year plan had me comfortably settled in a law firm on the partner track not settled at a messy kitchen table, keeping track of an urban minister's type budget. And until I married my white husband, I didn't listen to rap music, know the difference between Tupac and Snoop Dogg or watch BET. So that's Oshita, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, before we dive in your book, like what do you, when I, what do you most want people to know about, who like where you're situated in the world that will give them context mm. for, um, for your voice and why why you needed to write this book? Yeah, I think one of the things that most defines me, or that I that I look back and I see, like Lisa Sharon or not Lisa Sharon, um, Brenda Salter McNeil says, like, catalytic you know catalytic moments where like. Um, inflection points where like, oh, this, this really clearly uh, shaped me and formed me and influenced the kind of person I came to be is that I found myself often the only in a lot of different spaces and communities. Um, the only person of color, the maybe a little bit, the only sort of more progressive or justice minded person in a space where we didn't talk about that. Like I found myself in a lot of these spaces um, and instead of feeling um, ostracized or discouraged by that, um, I found myself really curious about the people who did, who who surrounded me and having a deep like desire to be in relationship with them and see I, I see the good and people who are different than me. And so even though like I've been in spaces where I have been clearly, the, the most different person in that space, whether it's ideologically or the way that I look, um, I have always found that um, I find such gr- such joy and such um, a sense of calling and leaning into curiosity. And, and in doing that, I have found that being a peacemaker for me means being the kind of person that holds on to the humanity of all people and says that um, if you have a perspective that I deeply disagree with, a perspective that I might even think um, challenges my dignity or violates my dignity, then I'm not going to pass on that that shame or that hurt to you in my quest for us to kind of understand each other and in our quest to move forward because um, yeah, I've just found that that has just been the story of my life. When I've been in these spaces, instead of leaning into that like it, impulse to violence or impulse to like ostracize or impulse to even self-righteousness, I found myself leaning into this impulse to have curiosity and dignity and the belovedness of others. Um, and not to say like, I'm not saying that to be like self-righteous, but it's just, 
I've just never been comfortable with being the the loudest person in the room saying the most challenging thing just for the sake of it. I've, that's never been my thing. I've always been really comfortable with trying to influence people um, through love and relationships. So that's what I want people to know about me is whenever I talk about peace or whenever I talk about peacemaking or whenever I, whenever I'm in a space like this with, with new people um, that what you're going to get from me, even if it's hard or difficult, you're going to get from me a lot of curiosity and empathy and love because the kind of world that I want to live in is a world full of curious, empathic, loving people. Which I feel like is, you know, like drop the mic on that because that is not the, that is not the going um, thought leader that we hear from. And that is not the going influencer. And that is not the loudest voice in the room right now. And so I think one of the things that um, being a white peacemaker, it's tough for people to even know where to get in the ring. Yeah. And so I think that one of the most, one of the most you write about like a really common experience. And I think it was right after George Floyd, but I think it's, it's kind of this thing that you're saying where I feel like you, you put a stake in the sand about who you would be no matter what, um, what people were wanting from black women or from you as a pastor or from you as um as an anti-racism teacher like Mm -hmm. you wanted something different and so um i'm just gonna read it and then ask you to kind of talk about talk about it a little bit um so if you do have her book it is chapter seven chapter seven called where does it hurt um and then so you were talking about um, a black leader that has a prophetic gift to call it the ugliness of white supremacy in the starkest language she could find. And I respect her for that. However, I think there's a danger in conditioning white audiences to receive our correction with a side of humiliation. That's how I felt for those white people humiliated. Not a single thing in that video spoke to their humanity or the very real pain they might be experiencing as they leave behind these racist ideas and frameworks. So I went over to my account and I remember, I think when you did this, I remember you did this and now I'm like, oh, you did this on purpose. <laughs> so you went over to your account and you did a little experiment for four weeks. Once a week, I posted a heart check-in for white peacemakers, asking some variation of a question I learned from a podcast interview with civil rights activist and teacher, Ruby Sales. Where does it hurt? Every week, the comments were filled with white peacemakers thanking me for the chance to share their heart and and request prayer. All of them treated that space as a gift. No one took advantage. And I think there's a fear that if we as black leaders give white people an inch, they will take a mile across our backs. And it is a well-founded fear. But sacrificial love for me, peacemaking for me is a holistic work of hope. I choose to trust the good in you. And if you let me down, I'll lean into the goodness of God to sustain me. This is the only way I can practice anti-racism and live into my peacemaking values with integrity. And then it says that a friend told you that you were being a little bit too nice <laughs> on your feed. And she just was like, man, I just can't follow. I can't follow you right now because you're just being a little bit too nice. And I need you to yell at me is what your friend said. The question I wanted to ask her, but couldn't because we're meeting in a group was, why do you need me to yell at? 
yell at you. This is an expectation I've encountered in so many white peacemakers, a desire for my black anger, a need for me to put them in their place. And this is a really cool thing that, that I'm going to end on. Do you know that when you ask me to do this, you're asking me to dehumanize myself? Do you know when you ask me this, you are taking away my agency to choose to love you in the ways God is asking me to? When you ask me to get angry, to be real, I need you to honestly ask yourself whether it is because you want to learn and be challenged or because you want an acceptable, angry Black woman in your pocket, your own little social justice warrior, Beyonce. So I feel like when you... Like, that's just incredible. So I was just going to ask you to, like, share a little bit about um, what that what that really means for you. Yeah. Um, thank you for reading that. Um, I didn't know how um, effective hearing a white person read that would be. So I'm a little bit emotional. Um, and the reason why it's, it's, it's affecting me is because I... I came into this work um, really coming, first owning my identity as a Black woman and knowing that God didn't make a mistake in giving me my skin and knowing that my social location um, is because of oppressive systems and not um, a neglectful God. Um, and I came into this work breaking through and owning my humanity and saying, I am, I am loved. And the funny thing, the curious thing about love is that once you experience that kind of love, that kind of fullness, um, everything you, you, you're, at least for me, I'm super protective of anything that will come close to robbing me of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I entered into this work from that place of like, I, I'm loved and I just know how much, it, how great it feels to be healed by love. And I just want like you to be healed by love. And I see that racism in different ways as a white person has prevented you from, from owning your belovedness and feeling whole. Um, white supremacy, racism has done that for me. And I, and I just come into this work angry and using violence. Violence always begets violence. Violence never begets peace. Um, and so, yeah, so when I, when I, I, I wrote this book this particular way. So this, what, what's out in the world is probably like, it's like the third iteration of, iteration of this book because when I first signed the contract for this book, my publisher and I were like, hey, we need um, sort of an Anabaptist-y, peacemaking kind of spin on anti-racism. Um, so can we just write a book that's like how to be an anti-racist with some of our peacemaking ethos kind of like um, intersecting with it. Um, and I just found that, that the voice that I was using for that book wasn't real and it didn't feel real for me. The voice that this book is written in is really a voice that um, was my true, my truest, like across the kitchen table in a coffee shop. Like if you were to hear me talk about this stuff, it really came from like, I just want white allies to know that they are loved and that they are, that they are human and that white supremacy has robbed them of their humanity. And I want them to know they are beloved. Like I want them to do this work from a, with the, the, the goal of like wholeness and healing and restoration in mind and not the goal of alleviating shame or fear. Like I don't want that. Um, and so for me, when I 
wrote that chapter, I had I was thinking about a couple of instances where I was at a at different rallies or different spaces surrounded by white allies and just thinking like, are they going to be okay? Like, are they going to be able to like this? They're in the moment. They have something to do, but like when they're sitting at home reflecting on all that they've seen and all that they've gone through, like, what do they have? What's going to sustain them? Like there, I just felt so concerned about them. And then I also um, am thinking about how, so many books on anti-racism sold out or were at the top of book lists after George Floyd was murdered. And as I was watching white allies, white peacemakers process these books, what I was noticing is that they are processing them in spaces and then being corrected by people of color in ways that I felt um, was too harsh or not giving them not giving them uh, opportunities to ask questions, more like shutting down, like and, and then them accepting that. And that just really, that really bothered me. And so I wanted to write this book simply from that voice because, you know, I, I, I really believe that there are some spaces for hard truths. And I really believe there are some spaces to tell, um, to put white people in their place. Like that's, I think that there is basis for that. Um, but I think that the overall tenor and the way that the conversation was going at the time that I wrote this book was setting up this weird flip of a power dynamic to where white people who were just now coming into this work were learning to come into this work, also accepting a side of like shame or um, otherizing from leaders of color that I just, I just couldn't get down with. And so that's, why I wrote this book from that perspective. And it, and for me, it's been really hard because I have had some of those leaders sit me down and say like, you are being too kind or you are setting yourself up for a lot of harm down the road or, um, you know, you need to be really careful. And tell them what I, what, what I often say is that, or what I said is that I, there's no other way I can do this work with integrity because if I were to do it with the, you know, you um, don't center yourself, white people. It's not about your feelings. Um, if I were to send, if I were to do this work from that perspective, it would chip away at some of that healing and wholeness that I worked so hard for. Because the reality is, is that the kind of the beloved community is a community where we we own our belovedness, we proclaim and protect the belovedness of others, and that is what it means. That and then we become this beautiful expression of belovedness that resounds. And so I can't treat another beloved as somebody who doesn't have a story that got them to that place where they might be complicit to, to racist ideas. I can't call a beloved racist. So like I talk about in my book, like I don't call white people racist, even if they're doing something blatantly racist in front of me, I wouldn't call them a racist because that word has so much historical baggage and shame and dehumanization attached to it. So the, when I talk about it, I say that as a person who is beloved, who is susceptible to white supremacist ideas, that's the narrative that I have in my head. And then I would ask them, or I would be curious, like, do you, do you recognize the harm of maybe some of the things that you're saying or some of the things that you're doing? Are you interested in having a conversation about that? Because sometimes they're not, and that's okay. But that doesn't give me permission to walk away and call that person a racist. So like this deeply humanizing ethos that I just have, carried with me in so many other areas of peacemaking, like in urban core work and in, in, past, in my pastoral work, like 
I just carried that into anti-racism. I just think that is, um, it's brave. It's just super brave, Oshita. And you're just one of the bravest, kindest people. And you have, you have things on the line. You have three biracial children and two sons. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you, you're not coming to this um, with ideas. You're coming to this um, with real terrifying concerns for your children to stay alive. And then you're also holding the world that you deeply want to live in, which is one that it's of belovedness. Yeah. I mean, I, I write a chapter in the book where I ask white, um, where I, where I ask, ask the white peacemakers to do me a favor um, if I don't make it home safely. And, it, and that whole chapter is about how I recognize that, um, I am a person of color, I'm a black woman, and I live in a world that is um, so deeply beholden to white supremacist ideas. And white supremacist ideas are always violent. So I am I'm in danger of violence. And, um, you know, I recognize that having this posture of an openness and, and this like vulnerable humanizing posture in this work, it makes me vulnerable, makes me, I, I, and, so in, the, in that chapter, I asked them that to be the kind of white people, the kind of white peacemakers that show up for my biracial children in meaningful and powerful ways, if anything ever happens to me. Um, because I believe that in the same way that I don't, I don't believe that violence begets peace, I believe that love begets love. And if I am loving and I happen to die in the course or of being loving, um, I would love, I want white peacemakers to show up and being love, loving to my children. So they can actually see that there are white people who are good and who care and who show up and, and, for, and it matters to them to turn, you know, turn, um, to address some of the anger and heartache and frustration that they're going to have and that they have been carrying because of race. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I talk about that because, yeah, it is. It, I live this. I live this every single day. But what I don't get to do is I don't get to transmit that that harm and that hurt to other other people made in the image of God just because they are, are white. I don't get to do that. Um, I, sh I am the one that stopped that cycle of violence. So even though it comes to me, I'm not going to pass it to them. And so then I just ask, I'm going to do this work, but can you do the work of showing up lovingly for my kids? for my family which is so powerful and it's a legacy Oshita to like step in front of violence and say I won't I won't pass it on um that's why I'm so hopeful and your book um for anybody who uh is intimidated is not an intimidating book I I got the honor of endorsing and I felt and I wrote that it was like a north star in the constellation of the world that we are aching for and so whenever I hear um, everyday people say, well, it doesn't like Diana, ha, it doesn't matter. Like I, you're, or even I, I feel like they're trying to actually tell me that the small acts that I do don't matter Yeah, so, because we'll never fix it. And I was like, no, because when my sons see one person show up and do something in love for love in public, yeah, it is it is like insulating them 
I feel like yeah. it fuels them. It's giving them this internal root system that says, I see good in the world. Even yeah. if my brain sees a thousand, you know, like stories of the worst of the worst. Um, and I feel like white peacemakers can do that. Um, there's this one conversation that I feel like would you do it in like super gutsy. Like I wouldn't even have this conversation at all. <laughs> and you tell this story about uh, this, I'm assuming elderly gentleman named Trevor from a small <laughs> Minnesota town. And for people who have heard the um, Black Lives Matter and then the Blue Lives Matter. And for a lot of us, um, you know, we live in families where there are. They've heard this conversation and they don't know what to do about it. And they and it's really, really intimidating. But um, you took on this challenge. So this is this is Oshita, folks, everybody. So some guy hears her on a podcast and takes issue with her saying Black Lives Matter. What does she do? Gives him her phone number, does a Zoom call with him just to hear his perspective. And I'm just like, <laughs> uh, I have never done that. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. Um, but you do it. And so I'm just going to give you a little snippet. Then you you got to tell people this story you had with this okay. guy. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Trevor was raised in a rural Minnesota community where, as he told it, quote, the blacks and whites got along okay. They never played the race card and we never bothered them. But then he moved to the city for work and began to notice, quote, a different kind of black. They seem so agitated all the time. And it just seems to me that Black Lives Matter is just another thing for them to use to be all up in arms about. No one knows for a fact that race has anything to do with all these boys being pulled over by the police. So I just can't get behind that organization. So I think we've heard that <laughs> loud, super loud, under the table, like leveled at, at Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah. So you respond to him. You're on a Zoom call with him. I'm still just like, wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's gutsy to do that. And so you tell him, you're just like, and the fact that you always listen to other people first. You said that when you have these calls, you ask their perspective first. And so you say, yes. You know, I've met some really nice police officers and I even know some police officers who think who I think believe they would never treat a black person differently than a white person. I've had some really bad experiences, too. Would you mind if I shared share with you a story? He agreed. And I told him about bringing my kids home from the youth retreat. And so anyways, um, you tell him about your experience and then he listens you think, and then you end up telling them, Trevor, do you think maybe police officers, because they're human beings, are subject to that same kind of impulse to try to make themselves feel safer, more powerful, and maybe it's even greater because they're doing it for the whole community? Hmm, he said again. <laughs> well, maybe. Um, but I think that how you how you had that conversation with him is something that white peacemakers probably really want to be able to hear so that they could follow your yeah. lead like having that conversation because as a mom of a black son like black lives matter is so significant in their yeah. city and i feel like you also asked trevor is there any organization that is advocating 
to stop violence against um, black people and requiring the violence to stop and asking for accountability and for it to stop. And he was like, mm, no, I don't know of any other organization to get behind who's doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think you that's that's a conversation that is happening right now. But yeah. few know how to do it. Well, I see about that. Yeah. So I, I would say, so um, one of the things that I, that I think is really, really important um, and that I, that I try to do whenever I teach anti-racism is to be able to be humble enough to check my own, um, my own complicity to white supremacy and my own complicity to, to prejudice, prejudice um, ideas and racist ideas. Like how, how, am I, how have I been formed by these lies um and so one of the things that i told trevor was that you know um i my husband and i worked in a neighborhood in new orleans known for its gang violence and we had a two-year-old little boy at that time and i would catch myself sometimes you know get pulling my son closer to me as if we were walking on this on the street and some of the kids who i knew were gang affiliated were walking towards us. I would pull him a little bit closer to me. And I'm like, why would I do that? I'm brown. He's brown. They're brown. I'm in my early 20s. They're 14, 12, 13 years old. Um, we're neighbors. I know they're mom. Like, what is it about that that made me pull my son a little bit closer? What is it about um, that that makes me a little bit nervous when I when I'm alone with a a black man in an elevator or um walking down the street again you know like so okay so for me it was important to help trevor i had to de-escalate because for me i i could have come into that conversation quoting him and sharing all the facts and how and and giving him history about how you know there's a through line between the civil rights movement and black lives matter and if you are okay with dr martin luther king and the work that he did then you should be okay with what's going on right now. Like I could have done all that. And if, and I know that stuff, like I could come, but that's not what he needed. He was kind of, his energy level was like, he was really like um, ready and defensive. And so I had to deescalate. And the, the most reliable deescalation tool that I have ever used is, is storytelling and shared, shared humanity. When I tell my story and I, and I, offer that yeah me too moment like immediately there's this sense of like can we can we talk about this as equals can we like I see you you see me like I'm not here to judge you um and so I told him that because I wanted him to see that like you know even I as a person of color struggle with this so there's something going on it's not white people are bad people of color have it all figured out like there's something going on so I wanted to do that. So that was the first thing. And then the, then the next thing that I felt like was really important was for the, the, him to hear that story about how we got pulled over by a police officer, a white woman who yelled at me and yelled at my kid. And there was no reason to pull us over. And, um, and my kids had just had this amazing re- experience at a youth retreat. And I was like, thank you, Jesus, because they're PKs and PKs just, they just, they interact with their faith in a, in a very particular way. And I have, so many thoughts and questions and having them experience God that way at that retreat. I was like, yay. And then this thing happened with this police officer. So then 
So then I told that story of that experience and being like, you know, something, something's going on. Why did she feel the need to pull us over? And I think doing that helps me to be able to say, do you see that there maybe is a through line where like, we just, because of white supremacy, we just don't see each other and we don't trust each other and we don't love each other and we're afraid of each other. And so what happens when somebody who doesn't see and doesn't trust and is afraid is given a gun and given a badge and given authority and they haven't dealt with their own stuff. Do you think that they might take that into their job? And then helping him see that, I was like, okay, so now do you see that why, why that person needs accountability? So for me, it wasn't, I needed to school him, but I needed to invite him in into the lived experience so that he can say, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think it was helpful. I haven't heard back from him, so. <laughs> well, I think it was really helpful because I don't even feel like people can, um, I don't even feel like people feel like there's room to even ask somebody to listen to them or even ask them to look at why Black Lives Matter might be significant in history, in our moment, in in changing the trajectory of what we mo- of what we actually want in the future. Mm-hmm. It's either like they're out or everybody's in the same, same thought. And I think the way that you did that, um, it pivots things. It creates that third way, you know? Um, so I was just really, really wowed by it. (laughs) And I think the average person and (laughs) somebody who has, who's an expert on things, I don't think that they oftentimes will engage people. And so I think that love is creating a legacy that is transforming uh, mm-hmm. who we are and where we want to go because we don't change without connecting with each other. Like for we're we are tied up in that in that garment of destiny together. I'm yeah. like, I think if that's one thing that peacemaking says is is that we are connected and I can't cut you off. I can't throw you off the island. I can't just kill you if yeah. you're a problem. Like we're together. So yeah. what? What can we build together where everybody gets a seat at the table and everybody has what they need to thrive? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, so what would you, what, what is like, if you were to give people, you know, like, like three things, most important things, or just three things you find in your work as a spiritual director and your work as being a, a human who has decided your belovedness will be protected like you won't you won't take it from other people and you won't step outside of things that take it from you um Mm -hmm. what what do you what do you want jesus followers to follow in yeah okay so the very first thing and i i i say this all the time and i will never stop saying this because i think it is so incredibly important um so the pandemic George Floyd's murder in the middle of the pandemic and the um, in the uptick of conversations around race and justice um, was, I, I think it was so important. And I, and I, I heard one person say that like pe- people were not looking at anything else. We didn't have anything else going on. And so the fact that George Floyd's murder kind of just swept across the world is because it was all that we were looking at because we didn't have our life going on. Um, 
But one of the things that I noticed and that I started to get concerned about was that there are so many white peacemakers um, consuming good anti-racism books and, and education and like really coming to terms with some of the things that have been going on in our country, but they were doing it on their own. Um, and, the, and they were doing it isolated because of the pandemic for all the good reasons. This is not work that we can do on our own. What we are doing is we are healing historical generational brokenness. What we are doing is we are bridging communities back together. So that means that we can't do this work on our own. I can't do this work by myself. I can read something and have an aha moment, but I have to go and have a community of peacemakers who are committed to anti-racism with whom I process it and that I bounce my ideas off and that I share my heartbreak with and that they hold it and that we hold each other's humanity and that we claim each other's belovedness and then we go, like we, the beloved community is the beloved community. It doesn't stop at Henry Nouwen's work of our own belovedness. Like beloved community means we become a community of beloved. So what, the very first thing I would say is if you are a white person and you are doing this work, you're going to hear your story doesn't matter. Your emotions don't, don't matter. Like you don't use your, you don't, wep, don't use your tears as weapons. Those are all really good um, warnings, but you do need to have a space where your story matters, where you can cry openly, where you can be held and your humanity can be acknowledged and you can be called beloved. So you need to have other white allies, white peacemakers that you are doing this work with not just reading my book, but then meeting with each other and talking about the ways that you are showing up like, for anti-racism, the ways that you are being a peacemaker and the mistakes that you make and the things and the good things that you do, you know, celebrate that shalom, like, but do it in community because this is work. This is this community healing work. This is not ind just individual healing work, right? That's the first thing I would say. Um, the next thing I would say is it's really important for you to recognize that this work is going to touch on all parts of our like when i talk about anti-racism peacemaking being a holistic a, a holistic way of doing anti-racism it's recognizing that when you do this work you're going to touch on some past trauma you're going to touch on some present insecurities you're going to touch on some you're going to be your pride's going to be checked like it's going to be a deeply emotional work so it would be really good for you to have you know a spiritual director or a therapist or a pastor or somebody who can companion you in that, that specific way. Um, so not somebody who is going to be your cheerleader to do more work for just for anti-racism or justice, but somebody who will just hold, hold those and process those, all that stuff that's coming up in you. Um, I heard one person, um, Maisha T. Hill um, say, you know, you need the Holy Trinity of caregiving. You need a pastor, you need a therapist, and you need a spiritual director. And she was saying this to white people. And I was like, yes, that's it. You you need that. You need that wraparound care. Because the anti-racism peacemakers that I know who are doing this work sustainably, who are bumping up against the hard, but then coming back to it are the ones who have that wraparound care. And when they know like, oh, somebody checked me on a microaggression and I got defensive. It's not because I don't care about anti-racism. It's because I have this childhood trauma and that thing that they said triggered that. And so let me tend to that because I think that's a lot of, a lot of times as a person of color, what I'm seeing when I, when I say, Hey, that 
you know, did she know that that was a harmful thing? That defensiveness is not just the fragility because you're not used to talking about race, but, but it's also something else was touched, something else was triggered. Um, so just that's the second thing I would say is how about care. And then the third thing I would say is, you know, find find the voices that matter that have been really meaningful to you and then support them. Mm-hmm. Like do, do your very best to let them know um, that their work matters to you and ask how you can support them. Rachel Held Evans um, was a leader that I loved so much and she passed a few years ago and she and I built this like kind of sweet online friendship. But I remember one time I had, po- I had written something, something about, um, I can't even remember, but I had talked about race in an article that was kind of, a lot of people were reading and I was getting a lot of flack online for it. And she sent me the sweetest message of saying like, I see you, like you don't have to reply to me, but I just need you to know that I see what you're going through. I see how vulnerable and brave that was. Your voice matters. Don't give up. And that was actually at a kind of a pivotal time for me that I got that message because I was like, am I doing this work because I'm black and it just matters to me? Or am I doing this work because God has called me to it? And the partic- when I say I'm doing this work, I'm particularly saying the work that I feel called to, to be a spiritual director, to be a companion to white allies in this work. Like I was kind of feeling myself lean into that and God was forming it, me into that. And that was kind of the angle that I wrote that or that I contributed to that piece. And when she brought that to me, I was like, yes. And so, you know, find the voices that most resonate with you. Like my friend who says, I need you to yell at me. She doesn't follow me, <laughs> but there is something that she follows that she, she's like, I, she gets me, you know, like there's something about the way she talks about race that I totally get. And I actually like really appreciate her perspective and how she manages that and how she manages her social media. She follows her and she supports her. So those are the three things I would say. You can't do this alone. No one asks you to do this alone. This, this work, I think we're we're in super we're in a lot of danger if we try to do all this work alone. In danger of feeling overwhelmed and giving up. In danger of self righteousness. Um, find community to uh, so do this work in community. Um, get that wraparound care that you need because this work is going to trigger. And then for white allies, find the leaders of color who are ministering to you, who are speaking to you that you're learning from. Tell them that you're learning from them and find, you know, ways to support them. That is so practical and just so human too, because um, I think encouragement is like a dying thing. (laughs) I'm just like, I'll get a random message from somebody I don't even know on the internet saying, I see you. Yeah. And I'm just like in tears over here. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know. Our deepest need is to hear that, you know, we're created in love and we're loved and we're seen and like we can give that to each other along the way not as perfect people but if we're if we're going to keep showing up then we're going to need uh to keep hearing that you know that that we can keep showing up um and and sharing our stories you know because I think it's if you do start to speak up, which is what I think white allies need to do, um, mm. a lot of people <clears throat> lose a lot of friends and um, lose relationships and families because there is an allegiance factor. And when you start yeah. to say, I am unwilling to not speak up about violence when it hits black and brown bodies, um, that is a deal breaker and losses. Yeah. You know? So yeah. I just, 
I thank you for those three really practical ways because uh, that's what I want for my kids and your kids, that they will have just rootedness and surrounded with people who will love their humanity yep. and be with them as they continue, mm-hmm. like building the world that they're uniquely uh, meant to be part of. Exactly. Of. Yeah. Um, and one another really cool thing about your book is you have breath prayers. Yeah. At the yeah. End. So um, would you mind, uh, we're going to, we're going to end folks, but before we do, we are going to have Oshita lead us in one of the breath prayers that um, she offers at the end of every chapter. There's one. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I suggested the breath prayer and then I, I was like, oh, there's, there's several in this book because I end every chapter. Okay, so let me just tell you a little bit. Can I just tell you a little bit like behind the scenes book? Okay, okay. So I wrote this book the third time around. I was like, okay, they're getting like, they're getting like sitting across from the coffee table. Like, I think I literally even say um, like, hi, come in, sit down. Let me give you a cup. Like, I think I even say something like that. Like, this is the way that we're going to talk, okay? Um, And one of the things that I found myself doing as I was writing this book was asking myself, okay, like, I just dropped like something really hard (laughs) in this part. If I were sitting with somebody, like, what would I do? And, you know, I'm training to be a spiritual director. So I'm very, very comfortable with this silence. Like, I'm just like, let's just take a moment and just ponder what we just heard or let's check in with ourselves. Like, I've grown very comfortable with that. And so I found myself as I was writing this book, wanting to, again, anti-racism peacemaking, the way I define it is like doing this work of, dismantling systems of oppression um, that have harmed brown and black people, but doing it with empathy and love is the holistic work, right? So I kept trying to like throw in like spiritual practices like throughout the book of like silence and centering. And like, I kept trying to throw all these things and my editor kept being like, we don't have room for this. We don't have room for this. And so I finally was like, okay, I, I think I could sneak in like a breath prayer at the end of each chapter um, as, a, as a way of saying like, we. We are doing this work in bodies that are exhausted. We are doing this work with minds that have gone through trauma, but we're also doing this work as spiritual beings and we need to tend to our souls as we're doing this work. And so just slowing down and checking in and connecting our breath um, and, and with what we're feeling with a, with a name for God that's meaningful and then a request for the moment reminds me of how like the disciples after Jesus was a victim of violence, he experienced the oppression of, of, of a brutal Roman empire. And they were like, what are we going to do? Like, they were like all up here, Jesus showed up and he breathed. He's at peace, be still, right? And then there's something about connecting our breath, calms us down, connects us with God and gives us just a little bit of that breathing room we need to move forward, right? So I kind of threw those in and, and that got past my editor. <laughs> so, but from doing that, um, but from doing that, I I realized that I, I wanted to do this work long-term, um, but I couldn't be the kind of anti, I, I'm, not, I'm not built to be the kind of anti-racism teacher you would think uh, would come from somebody who wrote a book. I wanted to be, a, I decided to be a spiritual director. And so I'm in my final months of training to be a director, um, to be certified. And I came into the program and told my facilitator or the supervisor that I'm doing this because I want a companion white ally. I want to be able to sit 
and hold that space for them to experience that peace be still as they are processing um, anti-racism and as they're continuing to do the work of dismantling systems of oppression. Um, and so I really like love Howard Thurman and his work, how he was a mystic of the movement. And so that's why I'm, I would love to end our time together with a spiritual practice of breath prayer to remind ourselves to tend to our souls. Um, and if you, you know, if you want to kind of stay connected with me, I used to do this thing on social media. I might do it again in the new year where um, we would do breath prayers every morning. That's I did that during the pandemic. And that's kind of where this practice of crafting breath prayers. Um, and I'm mostly active on Instagram. So and I'm sure that information will show up someplace. Um, so I'm going to close with a breath prayer. Before I do that, Diana, do you have a favorite breath prayer from the book? I mean, you have it in front of you. <laughs> I don't have a favorite. Um, okay. But I feel you like know you, what? Could, you could do anyone you want because I feel like you do breath prayers. Like some people say, hello, Oshita just does breath prayers. <laughs> like, I know. Hey, let's let's do this because I know okay. that you I know that you used to pop in when I would do so when yeah. I would do breath prayers. Okay, so you know how we would craft a name for God that was meaningful for us, and then a request for or a, for us, and then a request for the moment. So a name for God that's meaningful and a request for the moment. Let's craft our breath prayer in real time together, live, and then on the podcast. So, what is a name for God that we can use that is meaningful for us that kind of encapsulates? the conversation we had or this season what is landing for you right diana i think just god as my hope or god okay. is the expansive love like a okay. constellation of love okay so how about um expansive love and then what's the request for the moment i want joy you want joy okay <laughs> okay so let's do let's do God of expansive love, we embrace your joy. And I love that because we do this work of anti-racism, not just to be the greatest social justice warriors in the room. We do this work of anti-racism because we want to heal generational historical brokenness. We want to bring love where there has been hate. We want to bring the agents of healing where there has been violence, like the God of expansive love, that love that we can all find our way in to receive and all find our marching orders to take out the world. So God of expansive love. And then we embrace your joy because this work is hard, but it's like, there's joy. It's like with Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before us, we do this work because the beloved community is a community of celebrating our belovedness, celebrating our humanity. So then we need joy. And also like Willie James Jennings says, joy is um, resist all of death and all its signatures, right? It's, it's subversive. So let's do that. God of expansive love, we embrace your joy. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple deep breaths together. Breathe in with me and breathe out and breathe in again and breathe out, kind of breathe at your own pace while I give us a little bit of instruction. So we're going to say, God of expansive joy, we're gonna breathe in and then we're going to exhale. And the way I like to do this is I like to, as I'm breathing, just imagine all of the kind of feelings and concerns and worries that have come up in me 
um, maybe in the past hour since we just had this conversation, what is all, what's all the things that have come? I just imagine them just kind of right in the middle of my face. And then as I say the name of God, it kind of just breaks through. Kind of like Moses parting the sea. The name of God just breaks through all of that. And then as I breathe in, I breathe that in and allow that to settle into my heart and in my body. And then when I breathe out the request, the request for the moment gives me that, that little push that I need to go out into the world. So take a moment and imagine all the stuff that's come up in this conversation for you. And then say, God of expansive love, God of expansive love, imagine it parting it and then breathe in. Let that settle. And then on the exhale, we embrace your joy. That, those are our marching orders. That is what we are invited into. Let's do it one more time. God of expansive love, breathe in. And on the exhale, we embrace your joy. Mm. Amen. Well, Sheeta, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a total joy. Um, so RLC community, thank you for joining us for the book club. And before you leave, um, we are just still inviting people all through the end of the year to invest in peace and invest with RLC as a peacemaking movement of Jesus and justice. And if you do, you will be uh, registered to win one of those tear gas um, ornaments that if you want to see Shane jingle it, there it is. Um, and it's a tear gas container canister um, that was shot by the Israeli army in Bethlehem. So I feel like um, that is a symbolic of an interruption of, peace, of violence for peace. And then don't forget to join us for the first of the month morning prayer in January. So that is what is coming up. Thank you so much for joining us and being part of this community. And Oshita, again, just thank you for your light and thank you for your joy and for leading us. Um, we are so grateful and blessed to know you. All right. Have a good night, everyone. Awesome. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.